So there's this famous painting uh, by Hieronymus Bosch that hangs in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. It's called The Ship of Fools. And I, yep, I have it right up there for you. The, the title of this, this painting was taken really from a, uh, a common motif in the um, uh, medieval period. And uh, he um, took the idea and, and put many, many kinds of symbolism in it. There's, there's 10 people that are in the, uh, the boat. It's a small vessel. And, and there's two overboard that are swimming all around it. Um, it appears that nobody is steering the ship. There, there's, there's no captain on, uh, on this uh, boat. Uh, everyone on board is just way too busy drinking and feasting and flirting and singing to uh, know where the waves are pushing them. And yet, Bosch wants us to see them all as fools. They're fools because they are enjoying the, the, the pleasures of this world. Hold on while I fix my wire here. The, they're enjoying the pleasures of this world without knowing where it leads. I mean, if you look very carefully at the, the painting here, the top of the mast hangs a, a, a bunch of dangling carrots, and a man is climbing up to reach them. And if you look uh, even above the carrots there, you'd see that there is uh, a significant detail that in that tree is a human skull. And the idea is that these fools on this ship think that life is absolutely perfect in their lives of licentiousness, but yet they are sailing right toward their demise. The only pilot who is steering this ship is death himself. Now, Bosch's point is clear. To live foolishly is to sail into death without even knowing it. And Bosch is picking up a theme here that the Apostle Paul had written 1,500 years before he wrote this painting. It's a theme that will guide our time together here uh, this morning, and it can be summed up like this. If we are united with Christ by faith, then we must live out the new life in Christ by wisdom and the influence of the Holy Spirit. If we want to be the church that Jesus wants us to be, then we as individuals must live our entire lives, every aspect of our lives, in Christian wisdom. And so let's look at this passage here. It's a short passage, but it is packed with, with truth. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Friends, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your word would guide our thoughts and our speech and our intentions today. 
um, that uh, the words that are prepared here would be from you and that you would uh, not only convict us by your spirit, but encourage us uh, in your spirit as well. And so, Father, it's to that end that I ask this. Amen. Well, Paul tells us two things today that we have to employ uh, to avoid stepping into this ship of fools. And the first is that we have to watch our lives carefully. Watch your life carefully. You know, getting a, a, a car with cruise control was an absolute game changer for me. Uh, my first car was a, was a 1992 Pontiac Sunbird. And it was great. And uh, I had to take uh, Highway 77 every day for about 20 minutes in order to get to, uh, to high school. Um, and I quickly learned um, that when you're on the road a lot, your leg can get sort of tired. And, and boy, it would be good if there was someone that could do something about that. And uh, when I went off to university then, uh, I ended up getting a 1994 Pontiac Grand Prix. Now, if you know what a Pontiac Grand Prix is, that's like luxury meets sport. Uh, it was fantastic. I loved it. And one of the upgrades on the Pontiac Grand Prix was that it had cruise control. And so when I'm taking this 90 mile an hour trip from uh, the university uh, back home, I could do so without, you know, having to worry about zoning out and going way faster than I, you know, wanted to. And if you had a Pontiac Grand Prix, man, that thing could cruise quickly without you even knowing it. So cruise control was absolutely crucial for me. Uh, and if you uh, have ever traveled cross-country before, you're probably thankful for cruise control. You know, the same concept is found in our kitchen as well. I mean, who doesn't like a crock pot? I mean, think about that. You're going to go to work, and you're like, oh man, I don't want to have to prepare too much for supper tonight. So what do you do? You take out the crock pot, throw some meat in there, maybe some veggies, whatever. And by the time you get home, you open up the door. It smells amazing. The meat is there. It's ready. It's fallen off the bone, and it, it, it's time to eat. You didn't have to do anything. We love this idea of setting something and letting it do its thing. It's easy. It's convenient. You hardly have to pay attention to it. And while we love the idea of cruise control and crockpots, um, it doesn't work that way in the Christian life. When it comes to the Christian life, there is no cruise control. You can't put your faith in a bowl, set the temp, and, and let it cook for the next six to eight hours and, and assume that one day it's just magically going to be ready. Uh, instead, it takes diligence and attention, both of which, if, if they're neglected, can be a, a disaster. Yet, many of us are spiritually coasting. We're, we're going through life not paying attention at all to how the, the events within our life are shaping our souls or how uh, the events um, are shaping our thoughts and intentions and our desires and our worries and our behaviors um, and how they are indicative of, of what's already in our, our hearts. We, we tend to think that um, just putting our conversion and maybe a daily or weekly Bible reading uh, and maybe our Sunday worship attendance into that pot and putting it on low heat for the day, that somehow that's magically going to transform us. But it's not going to make us necessarily who we were created to be. 
Now, in verse 15, Paul tells us that to spiritually coast is not only unsustainable, it's actually giving us a ticket onto the ship of fools. He says, look carefully then how you walk. The word that he uses for look here doesn't mean passively gazing at something as, as you would at a zoo. You look at the animal, that's cool, and you just move on. Rather, this is a command to take note. Take inventory of your life. This is not a suggestion. It's imperative. It's something that we have to do. And how are we to go about looking into our lives? Verse 15 goes on to say that we are to uh, live not as unwise, but as wise. Well, what does that mean? Well, on the negative side, he is saying that we can't spiritually coast. To spiritually coast is to not consider God's will and God's way um, in various aspects of your life, but rather to prioritize your own will and your own way and your own desires above and, uh, above and beyond not only other people's but also God's. To uh, be one who is spiritually coasting is to not reflect on the motives behind your anger. The motives behind our, behind our glaring and obvious sins, or maybe to not even recognize them or acknowledge them. To spiritually coast is to go through life acknowledging God, saying we believe in God. Yes, we, we, we believe that Jesus has died for our sins, but yet our behaviors and our attitudes and our, our speech, we're living as if God doesn't exist at all. To spiritually coast is to profess Christ but neglect a commitment to worship Him regularly with other believers. To spiritually coast is to fail to motivate yourself to plug into serving Jesus in, in, some, uh, in some way. To spiritually coast is to clock your spiritual time, uh, to, to put in your spiritual time clock and then just, you're done. In Paul's term, terms here, this is living unwisely. In other places throughout the Bible, it's called living foolishly. In the book of Proverbs, is almost all about, you could summarize the book of Proverbs of how to live wisely and how to live foolishly. You know, Aaron Neville may have sang, everybody plays the fool. Mr. T may pity the fool, but we hope that that never is something that is said about Christians. We hope that that is not something that we are known by. Instead, we have to turn off the spiritual cruise control. We need to take the wheel, and as Paul says here, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. To live wisely is to live according to the Spirit. To live wisely is to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, it is soaking in God's word and not just leaving it at that, but actually doing God's word, obeying it, actively trying to live out God's word. It, it is asking the question, what is God's goal for me in 
fill in the blank. How would God want me to respond to this? How would God want me to go about this? And it can be something as grand as, uh, and big picture as your life mission or your marriage or your children, or it can be simple, uh, as simple as saying, how would God want me to respond to this really rude and hurtful comment that this person just gave to me? It is asking God's perspective on it. Proverbs, uh, it's a book all about cultivating wisdom, says in, in chapter 1, verse 7, that the beginning of, of uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But then what does it say? That fools despise wisdom and instruction. And interestingly, Paul gives one specific way that we can live wisely uh, in the Christian life, and it's found in verse 16. Uh, it says, if we live wisely, then we will make the best use of our time. Now, I'm, I'm not sure why the ESV Translation Committee uh, decided to use the term making the best use of the time, because the literal rendering of that phrase makes more sense. Literally, Paul is saying, redeem the time or buy back the time. It makes sense when you compare it to the next phrase that's going to come that we'll get to here in just a second. But we are called to redeem the time that we have. And it doesn't just mean avoiding laziness. But it is, um, it is, it is telling us that we only have 24 hours in a day. Maybe 80 years in a life. How are you going to use them? Are you just going to coast and hope to get by? Are you going to capitulate into hedonism and just live for pleasure? Life is all about living it up and then that's it? Are you going to, or are you going to make your life count for now and eternity? Friends, living like a fool right now may be uh, really fun, but there's coming a day when the chickens will come home to roost. It will be done. Pastor John Piper once mentioned that in his house growing up, there was a, there was a sign, an embroidered sign, right at, the, uh, right at their front door so that as they walked out of their house every day that they would be reminded as they, uh, as they walk out into the world. And this is what the embroidery said. It said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when we think about redeeming our time, is that not a good statement to live by? That only one life, that's it, you get one crack at this, and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so when we look at it that way, what needs to change? What needs to be gone? What needs to be taken on? What needs to be strengthened? What needs to be fostered? What what does that mean for your relationships in your life? What does that mean uh, for the direction of your life and, and the direction of your family? We need to redeem the time because, Paul goes on to say, the days are evil. It's no secret to know that the day and age that we live in and the culture that we live in will not help you at all to be more holy. It offers you no help 
in being who you were created to be. The culture instead will do whatever it can to entice you into getting onto that ship of fools. They are led by death and misery, love's company. They're on, the pay, they're on the road to death, and misery loves company. We must instead buy back the time that we have. Therefore, verse 17 says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It backs up the, the, by saying here, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Friends, the, uh, our time is short. Some of us have already lived the majority of our lives. Some of us may have many years to come. How are you going to live them out? We need to watch carefully how we walk. But second, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul moves on to describe a second way in which we live out this new life in Christ, and it's to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And he explains this by having a contrasting illustration, and it's sort of an interesting contrast. He, he writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how in the world do we quantify this, uh, this contrast? I mean, the first thing is to, to see that Paul doesn't prohibit the drinking of alcohol per se. Uh, in fact, the Bible as a whole doesn't. It, it says that it can be a joy and a catalyst to, uh, for, uh, for intimacy in marriage. And, and um, when Timothy was having stomach issues, Paul said, stop drinking just water, have some wine for your stomach to make it feel better. What it does prohibit, though, is excessive drinking. Drunkenness, drinking to, the point of drinking to the point of being a fool. And Paul says that such an example is, is one of debauchery. There's a word that, debauchery is not a word that we use very much. It's kind of a, a fun word to use because, I mean, who uses that in common vernacular anymore? Well, what does it mean? It means reckless living without concern or thought to the consequences of such a state. In other words, it's to live foolishly. So Paul says that we're not to be drunk with wine, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that we are not to be drunk on alcohol, but we are to be intoxicated by the Holy Spirit? What would that mean? There's a false teacher, I'm not going to give you his name. If you want to know what his name is, you can come talk to me afterwards. But he goes by a nickname, and his nickname is the Holy Ghost Bartender. And when he goes to events, he tries to get the crowd, I'll, I'll call them that, um, to believe that to be filled with the Spirit is to behave in a way that you were drunk on alcohol. So if you, you can YouTube this and, and see how crazy it is. Uh, in one of his revivals, being filled with the Holy Spirit means laughing hysterically and uncontrollably and falling out of your chair doing it. 
uh, stumbling, not even being able to walk in a straight line. Uh, it also means um, fumbling through your words and mumbling through your words, literally acting like you are drunk on alcohol, but you are drunk on the Spirit. Is that what Paul wants us to be? Certainly not. In the New Testament, nowhere do you see anywhere an example of people acting like idiots when they get under the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, at Pentecost, the apostles were accused of having been drunk because they were speaking in foreign languages. But I'll tell you what, when I was an RA back in, back in college, and I had to go through the process of uh, initiating discipline of someone that was drunk on campus, never once did I ever meet anyone that randomly started speaking Arabic fluently, or Spanish, or French, or Russian, or whatever it is. And so whatever this being filled by the Spirit means, it has to do with control in some way. Alcohol tends to affect the frontal lobes of the brain, among other things, the, the frontal lobes. And the frontal lobes are really, really important because they are responsible for kind of regulating your emotion and your self-control. And so when people are, you know, getting a little tipsy, they start doing things that they wouldn't normally do because that, uh, those inhibitions that would normally hold them back are, are gone. They have no self-control whatsoever. They'll engage in risky behaviors and open themselves up to all kinds of dangers. But on the other hand, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, we have to remember that one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So whereas alcohol, uh, being filled with alcohol to the point of drunkenness will make you absolutely lose control of yourself and you will no longer be who you are, who you are for a period of time, the Spirit gives you control to live as you ought. When you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, when you are living filled with the Holy Spirit, you can reject debauchery. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we have control over our tongues. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we have control over our thoughts and our behaviors. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Paul goes on then, in the beginning of verse 19, to show how this new life in Christ is being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, this self-control, if you will, um, works its way out uh, within the community of the church. In summary, he says this, to be, to be filled with the Spirit uh, in the church means building each other up, genuinely praising God in song and thanksgiving, and yielding to each other out of reverence for Christ. Now let's break that down. In the middle of verse 18, he says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, addressing, uh, I'm sorry, and, and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now I love musical theater. Um, I, I think the plots, for the most part, are somewhat realistic for many of them. But the way that they're carried out is very unrealistic. Uh, take West Side Story, for example. You have two rival gangs, right? They have knives, and they're going to they're gonna cut each other up. The sharks, and uh, anybody else know the other one? 
Oh, wow, you guys are good. Is that Mary? Oh, man. You just went up a notch in my book there, Mary. Yeah. The sharks and the jets are about to rumble, and you think, man, blood's about to stir. So what do these guys start doing? They start snapping, and they start singing. Who does that, right? You think in Guys and Dolls, when, um, when oh, oh, what is his name? Sky Masterson is about to uh, gamble everything he has on one crapshoot. He's got the dice in his hands, and these are gangsters and, 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 uh, and you know, gamblers that are around him. What does he do? He busts out into a raven chorus of luck be a lady tonight. Who does that? Nobody does that. It's not realistic. So is that what Paul wants us to do here? That when I see Georgia, Georgia, how are you doing? No. Not at all. What it means, though, is that when we come together as a collective body of believers, one of our main activities is to sing together. Corporate singing is crucial in the life of the church. When we come here and sing together, we're not just singing to God, though we are doing that. We're encouraging each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs when we are in such a tight community. Some of the words that will be on the screen, we're singing and we're processing, and yet we know that this individual on the other side of the aisle is, is dealing with some stuff that you can't imagine. You, know, you think about uh, maybe there's someone that is struggling in some way, or maybe they've had a devastating diagnosis recently, but yet you see them praising God in their heart. And you think, man, wow, well, if, if this person can praise God in this way, according to the truths that are on that screen, man, I can do that too. I can follow the Lord in that way. We sing deep, theologically rich songs here intentionally. And those songs are not just to honor God and who he is, but it is to teach each other through our lives based on the words that are on the screen there uh, by giving examples of how those truths work out in life. We ought to be a church that sings. I'm going to tell you what, gentlemen, some of us Scandinavian dudes, we don't like to show emotion. And so here's how a lot of us sing on I see you on Sunday mornings. This is how it looks. Maybe there will be a little bumbling of the lips. But that is it. Fellas, we have an amazing opportunity to encourage our brothers and sisters so get your hands out of your pockets. Stand up straight. Sing from the diaphragm. And, and let's praise the Lord together. Paul goes on to say that living a spirit-filled life, uh, spilled life, uh, spirit -filled life involves giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a spirit-filled person recognizes that every single thing in their life is a gift from God. They recognize that everything good in their life is not as a result of their ingenuity or their skill or their, their luck or their education or their talent. Rather, everything that they have or are is only because God has enabled that to happen. This is chiefly found in 
in our coming to know Jesus. The Spirit-filled person is keenly aware um, how deeply entrenched in, in sin they are by nature and that there's nothing that they could do to overcome that. They look to God as their only hope and recognize that even the hope and faith they have is also a gift from God. This recognition of the gospel's work in their lives helps us to be continually grateful to God. And so part of what we do here when we come together is to recall who God is, who we are, what God the Father did for us in Christ Jesus, and worship him together in grateful thanksgiving. And the final thing that Paul tells us here about living the spirit-filled life involves submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, submitting can be sort of a taboo word in our, our culture today, um, and it'll be more so next week when we start looking at the roles in, in, in marriage with husband and wives. But we ought not to be afraid of it. In this context, instead of thinking about it as like an obedience or being in a subjection to someone or something, the thrust of Paul's argument in this verse, at least, is that we should yield to other people. We should yield to their desires. We should yield to their things that they are um, wanting. Paul actually summarizes it best in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Why are we to yield to other people? Because that's how Jesus lived. I mean, if you remember back in the Gospels, Jesus summarized his mission quite uh, succinctly when he said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what that means is that we need to be people who set aside our interests and our desires and yield them to the betterment of other people. Yield them to the betterment of the church. What would it look like if we were a church that, that every single one of us wholeheartedly looked to the interest of others? What would it look like if we gave ourselves totally to focus on God's glory by not looking necessarily to our needs, but the needs of others? What would our church look like if there wasn't a hint of selfishness from anybody? What would our church look like um, if we prioritized the needs of other people here in this building and also in the community? It would, this would be an incredible, well, more incredible place than it already is. This is, why living, this is what living a spirit-filled life looks like. But here's the key. It just doesn't happen on its own. It's not cruise control. It's not a crock pot. It isn't manufactured. It is something that is worked for. It's something that every one of us has to put in prayer, sometimes sweat, sometimes tears, and a lot of time into. And we should do this because Jesus lived, bled, died, and rose for us. Friends, the ship of fools has plenty of room. 
that's a, if that's the vessel that you want to take to eternity, it's waiting at the gate. It is at the dock. It's fair is cheap, but the cost is steep. But there's a better option. Christ Jesus is calling you today to get out of that ship and come to a life that is filled with wisdom and led by the Holy Spirit. Will you today heed the word of Christ? Get off of the ship of fools. Be made new by his grace and become the person that you were created to be. Let's pray together.